0: Okay. Uh, once again, good morning. Uh, we're continuing our, uh, our study in Ephesians as the, uh, the sign up front and here on, on the board will tell you. But uh, um, I don't know if you're this way, uh, but historically I've been a person who gets uh, easily distracted. Okay. I think, I, I think the older I get, the less that becomes a uh, factor. Maybe it's called growth, maturing. I don't know, but the, the traces are still there. The traces are still there. When I was, uh, when I was younger, um, staying on task was a big problem for me. I frequently got notes sent home from school because I was not paying attention or I was distracting the other students in the class. And, uh, and, uh, and, and nowadays, I wonder nowadays if, if I would uh, have been diagnosed officially as, as someone with ADHD. Uh, I, I, my mom and I had a discussion about this not too long ago, and uh, we resolved that, you know, I don't know that I would be diagnosed clinically with anything, I'm trying to plug in my, my pointer here. Uh, but I, my, my problem was, is that I just, I just love to laugh. I love to, to have a good time. I, I, whatever was going on, I just, wanted, I, just wanted to, I just wanted there to be laughter. And I wanted to contribute to that laughter, if not be the generator of the laughter. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe that's what the nuts and bolts of ADHD is. I don't know. Uh, I think it's funny that I'm now being distracted by the topic of ADHD. As a, anyway. All that to say, I just wanted to have fun, and the problem persisted as I continued into college and then even into seminary. Though it wasn't distracting other students in the classroom or anything like that, instead it took a toll on my study habits. When I when I went to seminary, I lived I lived in on. Hey, I just realized you were here, Carolyn Denny. <laughs> Again, being distracted. <laughs> it's good to see you. Goodness, uh, yeah. Uh, so again, it took a toll on my study habits. And so like uh, when I was at seminary, for instance, not unlike uh, the college dormitory experience, it was very similar, probably with much less beer because it was at a, it was at a Baptist seminary. So there was no beer. And so, uh, you know, you, 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 it was a community environment. You would often, uh, you know, just the doors would be open and people kind of came in and out and whatnot. So even when you're studying, even when I was studying, I would leave the door open, which is, it's just, that's not a good study habit. Uh, even to this very day, if you if you come through the church, you'll often find some of the office doors are closed. Mine's always open because it's almost like, yeah, come on in. I'd love to talk to you. Just come in and have a visit. But again, if, if you're trying to study, that's just a bad habit. Have and so all it would take is, is for someone to be walking down the hallway uh, to come in and say, "Hey, listen, Lyric, I'm about to go." Yes, I'm in. Whatever you're about to say, I'm in. I'd love to do it, and 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 off and off I'd go. And so very prone to distraction. Um, and, and that's as far as I need to get. Again, I've grown up and I've learned to curtail that. And sometimes, you know, in the past, you've been through job interviews and one of the things they would ask you is, you know, what are your biggest weaknesses? And what are your, what are your strengths? And so often I would say one of my biggest weaknesses was, yeah, I, I'm, I'm prone to distraction, I can do that. But I've, I've I realized that that's a problem and here are the steps I've taken to curtail that. Just say something like that. If you're ever in a job interview, say something like that. Don't say, well, I just work too hard. That's my problem. They, they see right through that. Don't do that, okay? And, and my son, I think my son, my older son, is now uh, is also prone to that, too, because I'll, I'll, I could go just about anywhere. I'm about to, who wants to go with me, too? And my son is already like, let's go. I'm in. Count me in. He, too, easily distracted. But there's something wonderful about being distracted by something else, Distraction is the catalyst for the unexpected, okay? Distraction is the catalyst for the unexpected. And when those unexpected things are good things, the results are often great. When those are unexpected, when it's an unexpected thing or, or bad thing, well, you, know, you get the idea. So uh, I'm going to bring this back to uh, Ephesians now. We're in the book of Ephesians, and, and we're going to see that Paul, too, can be easily distracted. This is, this is phenomenal when you look at it. I don't know what your impression of the apostle is, but the first thing you have to remember is that though the apostles were inspired by the Lord to write down the very words of God, even apostles were subject to distraction. Here's what I mean. We're going to read our passage today, which comes out of Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. And the first thing you'll notice, and if you don't, I'll, I'll point it out to you, is that almost all of our text, almost all the text today is a sidebar. It's almost entirely a sidebar. It's like Paul got distracted for 13 verses. He goes, oh, by the way, and and for 13 verses, he goes on and he begins to instruct the church on, on what it looks like to be the church. Uh, he undergirds it with his sort of a, a thesis statement, which is a statement that is probably familiar to a lot of you. We're going to probably bring this up every week. Ephesians 2.89. This is sort of the, again, the, the thesis statement, Everything everything else that's going to come after this, you have to, read it in light of of what's said here. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one one may boast. That, it's God's doing. Your salvation is God's doing, it's not yours. Not your good works, not your intellect or anything else, but God's grace. It's God's grace that saved you, and it certainly wasn't your bloodline that saved you. That's what Paul continues to uncover for us throughout chapter 2 and into chapter 3 as well. You're not saved, you're not chosen because you're Jewish, uh, because you're in the line of Israel. No, no, this was by his design all along, planned from the start, that he would save both the Jew and the Gentiles. So with that understanding, let's read into chapter 3. It says this. We've got a, quite a bit, 13 verses here. Let's, let's work through it. Four. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming, here's where the the sidebar begins, right here, okay? Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known as I have written it briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Still sidebar. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. Still a sidebar. So that though the church... uh, So through. Did someone correct me? Someone, Nice. Good catch. (laughs) So that through, (laughs) how I I know you're paying attention. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known, uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your which is your glory. All right, that almost again. So the sidebar, it's almost almost all of that. All of that was a sidebar. Okay, if you remove the sidebar from ch- chapter 3, the thought process would look something like this. For this reason I Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 14. Bow my knees before the Father. <laughs> so everything between that, between those two verses is is a Oh, by the way, you know, in addition to that, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, he, all the way, all the way to verse 14, you know, he could have, he could have written it like this, but that's not what he did. Uh, when we say that the Bible is infallible, when we talk about the Bible being authoritative and true in all of its teaching, there, there is no fallibility, no flaws in it. We, we sure don't mean there aren't stylistic flaws. Okay, no grammatical issues. I hate to tell you that, but back in my publishing days, I don't think this would have gotten the first, past the first editorial round. Because <laughs> so, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, gotta, we gotta rework all this, okay? But Paul wasn't out to write a grammatical masterpiece here. Okay, he's writing a letter. He's writing a real letter to real people. And, and this is also what's so exciting uh, about understanding the scriptures. And also so hard about understanding the scriptures. You have to stand back and read every read it as a whole. You know this is what I you know what I try and and, uh, and emphasize over and over again. You, whenever you look at one passage of scripture, don't just look at the one passage of scripture. You got to look at what's around it. You got to see where it sits in light of the rest of the chapter, and that chapter and rest of the book, and that book within the rest of the of of the testament, if you will, and that within the rest of of uh, all of scripture. Uh, so you can't understand any small portion or verse without understanding the greater context. That's always the case. So you have to ask yourself why, why is Paul going in into the sidebar. Why is Paul going into the sidebar? Well, in this sidebar, Paul is basically talking about calling, his calling. Basically saying, I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he gets distracted. Oh, right. Have you heard? I guess you've heard. I assume you've heard that God has given me a special calling. I have this great insight into the gospel, and it's my job to take it to you Gentiles and to preach it to you. I became a servant Of this gospel and he goes through and he gives this long discussion on his job description basically what he's doing okay why well Paul was a pastor and at the end of his sidebar he says in verse 12 and 13 so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory so so everything in verses from 2 to 12 has to be understood in light of that okay Paul was not actually trying to teach us anything about his job description okay uh, he, he even basically says, I've, I've already told you all this. I assume you know this, but his whole point was he didn't want them to be discouraged over the fact that he's writing this while he's in jail. He's in prison. So you see why he breaks off now in verse one. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. And all of a sudden he immediately realizes, you know, I should say something about that because I, I bet that bothers a lot of the people that are going to be receiving this message. I'm in jail. I'm in prison. And that's probably going to come as a disappointment. Paul's way of showing the church how to deal with discouragement is, this is, this is why you, you find this in here. He's, he's telling the church, this is, this is how you deal with discouragement. He realizes that they may discourage because, again, he's in jail, so he says, don't be discouraged by that. The, the fact that I'm in jail is because of my calling. This is because of my calling. My calling was to bring you the message of Christ. My calling was to bring you the, he says it many times, the mystery of Christ, this is what God has called me to do, to bring you this message. And and you see, the message that Paul is preaching here angered a lot of people. Okay, He was saying the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and all these these pillars of the faith, uh, that God has now provided a means of salvation for Gentiles apart from the strict observance of the law. That was crazy for most Jews back then. And you can't preach those kind of things without upsetting a few people along the way. And so Paul is saying, I'm paying the price for that. I'm paying the price. I'm upsetting a few people. But guess what? It's so you can know the mystery of Christ. And it's so worth it. And it's so worth it to be here in prison, to be able to do that, to fulfill that calling so that you can hear the gospel. And so that's the first thing we need to notice about this passage today. The gospel gospel doesn't come without a cost. The gospel always comes at a cost, all right? Um, and it's, it's costly. You see, Paul is saying here, the fact that he's in prison isn't just, it's not just an un- unfortunate circumstance or as a, oh, by the way, I ended up in jail and I don't know what I'm going to do next. He's saying, you know, I'm here for a specific purpose, my calling, so that you can receive the gospel. In other words, this is a necessary component of bringing you the gospel, Okay, uh, do you see what that means? If Paul is saying, my being in prison is a necessary component of you receiving the gospel, he's saying that suffering, this is something we've talked about a number of times in here. I, you, if there's some chairs down the, in the, uh, you wanna bring them? Just so everyone has a, a seat, yeah, come on. We can, And oh, or there's a couple up here too. There's front row and and, uh, and if, yeah, if I get a couple, just to get a couple more chairs, that'd be great. Um, so in other words, Uh, suffering isn't an obstacle on the way to being sanctified. When we talk about sanctification, that's your growing in Christ, growing in grace, dying unto sin, and living unto righteousness. Suffering isn't an obstacle on the way to being sanctified. It's the means by which you are sanctified. It's not the means of our salvation. It's not what saves us. Our suffering doesn't pay the price to get into heaven, as it were, but our suffering... And not just individually, but corporately, What we suffer through together the struggles that we go through together. That is a means to sanctify us and set apart. It's a means to make us more like Christ, plain and simple. Christ suffered and you're being made to be like Christ. For example, okay, do you hate your job? How many of you have ever been through, through something in life where you think, I, I hate my job. Why? Why does the Lord have me in this job? I hate it. I hate it. The fact that you hate your job isn't an obstacle that you have to get past in order to resume your growing in grace. Your job is a means of growing in Christ, even though you feel like I'm miserable in this job. Okay, your job is the instrument by God's design that will allow you to grow in grace. Or sickness. Okay, we often look at sickness as, as an obstacle. This sickness is preventing me from growing in grace. This sickness is preventing me from growing in Christ. And what Paul is saying here is no, it's not an obstacle impeding your growth in Christ. It's the very instrument bringing about your spiritual growth, your spiritual sanctification. I think about, I think about uh, the, the noble family right now, who, you know, how, how, this is, I think his third kidney, you know? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it was like, Lord, why, why, why are you, why are you having me go through this? You know, it'd be easy for you to fall into that sort of uh, mindset. But this, even even going through it three times, is a means of sanctification, okay? It's a means of growing in Christ. It's the very instrument being used to bring about spiritual growth. And look how Paul talks about it. This is Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Your being made to be like Jesus through your suffering. That's what he's saying here. And so do you understand that? Do you get that? That, that is, that is true for any negative circumstance that you're in on the surface. You might view it as something negative, but that is the very means by which you're growing in grace. And so, uh, Again, when we talk about the cost of the gospel, this, this, is, this is what we're talking about. There's a cost going with it. Suffering is part of that. Not because, again, not because you're earning your way into heaven, but because you're being molded into the image of Christ. You're being made to be like him through suffering. If Christ suffered, you'll suffer too. Do you understand there are any comments or thoughts or questions on that much so far? Does that, does that rub you the wrong way? Why, why does God make me suffer? Well, because you're being conformed to his likeness. Is that, uh, is that bothersome? Sometimes it is. I mean, you can be honest and say, yeah, sometimes it is. Any other thoughts, comments before we continue? Yes, Olivia. Um, we were talking about that is weekly the with a friend. Mm-hmm. And, um, the way I explain it to myself also is that um, because God is good and now I'm in Christ, um, and, and sin was there, it's a fact, and so it has consequences. Mm-hmm. have been turned because of Christ into good. Yeah. So that even the suffering the mm-hmm. consequence of all of what was stolen and destroyed with sin, God cannot let it go to waste. Oh, that is so beautifully said. Yeah. Even the very consequences of your sin is what Olivia is saying. So so when you sin, sin always comes with consequence. Always. And so even that, what Olivia said, does not go to waste. Even even God uses that for your ultimate sanctification, for your glory, for, for your glory, for His glory. That you know you, you will be glorified through Him. Even even your sin. Even your sin. And uh, you know, the, it's inevitable when you talk about this, you have to go back to uh, Genesis and the story of Joseph and Genesis 50, 20, when he, when he ultimately sees his brothers again who betrayed him, who threw him into a pit and who sold him off to a band of travelers. And here they're throwing themselves at his feet for, for mercy. And he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Even, even in your sin, God will use that for good. He, he's not the author of sin is what the Westminster Confession tells us in, in 3.1. Uh, he's not the author of sin, but he still uses it. He, he reweaves it. He shapes it into a beautiful tapestry. And we, we talked a little bit about this this, this week in, the, in one of the Bible studies. Is that, you know, you look at any given, uh, you look at a tapestry and you look at any given thread. And, and, and a thread, you're not saying, well, this is a beautiful thread. <laughs> this is a beautiful strand of, of whatever it is you use to make a tapestry. But when you put it all together, when you put it all together, something something beautiful. So you're not highlighting any one thing in there, but through, through all of it together, it's beautiful. And it's beautiful. And what you meant for evil, I'm going to reweave into something good, is what he's saying here. So even, even your sin, even the consequences of your sin, the Lord refuses to let that go to waste. You'll still be grown gra- growing in grace through it. Yeah, Sandy. You're Sandy. You're Sharon. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. But everybody has some suffering in your life. Everyone, yeah. Truth, without it. But mm-hmm. some have so much more. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, mm-hmm. that's a tough one. Yeah. I know. I'm gonna say pass. Yeah, you know, the, the, with, with the the heart of what Sharon is asking here is, uh, why does it seem like some people suffer more than others? Is is it because the Lord says, well, that person doesn't need as much sanctification? And, and uh no, I, I don't think that's it. Um, I have to be careful here how I answer this too, because I don't want to imply that because you're suffering a lot, well, the Lord must really love you, right? I don't think I have insight to that, but I do know what I can tell any given person is that, yeah, in your suffering, you're being sanctified, and to the one who never suffers, uh, oh gosh, I wish I had a better answer, but uh, um, I don't know, I don't know. I really don't know why why the Lord would say to a believer, you know, that never really faces suffering. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. It's, but it's uh, he is sovereign over all of it. Anyone have any insight better than mine? Yeah. <laughs> Dean. I don't know if it's better. I would say, you know, when we, when we think about why is this man blind? What did his parents? That right. Mhm. You know, we, mm-hmm. It's not because not because he not because his parents, not because he did something that the Lord says that the Lord may be glorified. Is why that man was born blind. And I, and I think when, when we were a more agrarian, an older, and more, more ancient than we are now, I think a lot of these things were easier to understand. When you talk about a tapestry. When we talk about a, you know, an agrarian society where you're planting a seed, seeing it. Mm-hmm. Separating the impurities and, and heating and, and pounding it and forging. It, when we were more of a, 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 we would call it a more primitive society, we had a, I think we just thought differently. We had more time. To, mm-hmm. I know when I was a kid and, and driving a tractor in a field, you have a lot of time to contemplate what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in the world we live in. Today yeah. That's true. And, and I also got to say this, too, is that, you know, when, when we look at someone and say, well, they don't seem like they're, they've had to suffer very much in, in their life, that's, that's from a pretty limited scope. That's just from my view. Uh, because I think may, maybe you're in a season right now, or this person or that person is in a season, like, well, they don't seem like they're very suffering. They, they probably will. <laughs> none of us will make it through life without having, I, I promise none of us will make it through life without having to s- go through some sort of profound suffering, whether it's loss uh, of a loved one or illness or something like that. Uh, And so, you know, rather than look at that as something to to dread, which, again, I'm not inviting anyone to say, oh, boy, I can't wait till I get sick or something like that. But when you when that does, when you do encounter that, when you do encounter loss or suffering, that's the promise that you hold on to. And so, again, even though you might be in a season where you feel like I don't I don't feel like I suffer right now. Hang on, (laughs) because it's probably you're inevitably inevitably uh, going to happen. So, did someone else have their Todd, did you? Well, hey, I was gonna say that as well. I'm mm-hmm. not sure anyone, obviously some people suffer more than others, yeah. I don't think anyone escapes. So. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly right, not because I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. all right, let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yes, Olivia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I don't think that, um, number one, uh, I also believe that suffering means relative. Um, you may think somebody's not suffering, but to their degree, um, for them, whoever they are, that's right. And whatever they are dealing with may seem different. And I, and I, and I say that um, I don't want to go through all the, the scenarios, problems, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and I believe that everybody does have something. Yeah. And, but also, I believe that there is a degree that we don't understand something. Yeah. And um, with the opportunity of being in different continents, um, I had questions about, about that when I first came to the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it also makes me think of that scripture where the disciples see that, um, uh, that uh, differently about uh gentleman and they ask Christ who sent parents of him and
1: Christ says, no, not. Yeah. Not, not the parents, not him. Right. So it
0: was something that God has done for his, for his own glory, so yeah. something that. That God is glorified through it. Absolutely. That's very insightful. Uh, because, again, it's, we shouldn't be evaluating people's degrees of suffering because it's different. It's different for every one of us. The way I uh, uh, go through loss is different than the way someone else goes through loss. And, and that's very insightful. Thank you. Thank you for, for, uh, for sharing that, Olivia. Let's, uh, let's continue. I want to talk about our second thing, uh, mystery. Notice how many times that Paul uses the word mystery in our passage today. He mentions in uh, verse 3, 4. Six and again in nine. What do you suppose he means by mystery? You know, what is the mystery of Christ? Why is, is Christ mysterious? Uh, in, in one sense, Paul uses the word mystery throughout this letter and, in refer- and even in, through his other uh, epistles to the idea of what was once hidden now revealed, specifically that the Gentiles would be heirs of God's covenant promises just, just as Israel. But the, the mystery has a couple of meanings here, okay? And I almost hate to admit this, but um, I, I told you last week about my uh, my penchant for for uh, HGTV and, and self improvement, but I also am um, a big fan of the the true crime genre. I love watching shows like Dateline. Uh, Or even I'll listen to the podcast, so I'm just listening to it, not uh, not even uh, watching. And uh, you find yourself constantly evaluating the evidence and information presented uh, in those those shows, and you find yourself forming conclusions along the way. Let me tell you how bad it's gotten for me. I, I can't get over the fact that there are so many murder cases that are solved because police pull up a surveillance footage of someone who's in the Home Depot buying a shovel and sadly they're buying that shovel because they've they've buried their victim so now if I run into you at Home Depot and you are buying a shovel I'm gonna call the police that's how bad it's gone for me because I, I, I'm convinced that no one buys a shovel. You inherit it. You borrow it from a neighbor. No one buys a brand new shovel unless they don't want to tell anyone. I need a shovel. Why do you need a shovel? That's the first thing someone will ask you if you go to buy a shovel. Why do you? Why do you need to borrow the shovel? No reason. You know. <laughs> And they, they get caught, okay? So I, all that to say, I love, I love solving the mystery. And that's the dead giveaway, That bad, bad word there. Uh, that, that is the, the, a sure giveaway that someone is up to no good when they're buying a shovel in the middle of the day along with other things like tarps. And inevitably, inevitably, that's what happens, okay? And so it's not, it's not a difficult thing to solve. But mystery in this context is not like that, okay? When we talk about mystery, what is Paul talking about? The Greek word that Paul is using, it means exactly the opposite of what you might think it means, okay? It means not something hidden that you have to discover, that you have to figure out on your own, uh, that you have to figure out what needs to be revealed. It's the opposite. It means something that had to be revealed by God because it's something that you would have never discovered on your own. You would have never figured it out on your own because it's so counterintuitive because you would never come to the conclusion on it by by a process of reasoning or by a process of deduction. You know, know, this person buys this and he's going to use it for these nefarious reasons. No, it's nothing like that. You'd never... You'd never come to this conclusion on your own. Um, Like the law, for instance, the law is never described as mysterious in the Bible. Why? Because how do we understand the law? How do we receive the law? If we measure up, if we do enough, if you live good enough, right, God will bless you and you'll get into heaven. That's how reason tells you it should work, right? Right. That's the basis of just about every other major religion I can think of. Obey the law, please the deity, do enough of the law or whatever the standard may be, and and you get rewarded for it, okay? But that's not the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that the Son of God came to earth and triumphed through weakness. He triumphed through suffering and working on your behalf, okay? Doing the work for you, the deity doing the work for you. Okay. You are, as Luther once stated, simul justus et peccator. Any Latin experts in here? Simul justus et peccator. Any ideas? Simul? Huh? Simultaneously saint and sinner. uh, Simul justus justified. You're you're simultaneously justified et peccator and a sinner. You're simultaneously both. What does that mean? Uh, That this is only something that could come from God that who is nothing like us. It's a mystery, nothing like us in terms of righteousness or morality. So so how does this mystery play out itself in terms of our sanctification? If you're being made to be like this, how does this manifest itself? Do we start becoming mysterious? In in one sense, we do. We we take on the characteristics of Christ. We'll start to become a people that, that forgives when the world tells us not to forgive, when it doesn't make sense. That's counterintuitive. Or how, how about this? Have you ever uh, been uh, uh, inadvertently not charged for something at the store? Like you get something and, and it, you didn't pay for it and you realize, well, what's, what's, the, what's the easy thing to do there? All right. This, this happened to me not too long ago. It was at the Sam's Club. You know how much I love going to Sam's Club? Uh, and I realized, I don't know how it did, because they have a number of measures in place where, uh, where you, you, they, they scan your things, and they make sure you're not leaving without more than, than you paid for. Get all the way to the car, everyone's loaded in the car, and I realize oh, almond butter. There's almond butter, and almond butter is pricey, okay? And I thought, oh, I, I didn't pay for that. My first thought was, free almond butter, <laughs> right? Symbol <laughs> used to set peccator. I'm simultaneously still a sinner yet justified. There was something that testified inside of me that said, and again, I'm not bragging here because again, my first impulse was like, I'm, I'm not going back there. I'm not going all the way back there. But there was something inside me that testified to the fact, you got to go back there. You can't walk off with free almond butter. That is counterintuitive because outside of this Christian realm, I think anybody else would resolve the conclusion, I got away with free almond butter. Once in a while, sure, there might be someone say, I'm an honest person because I like being an honest person and therefore I will go pay for my own common grace, we'll call that, right? But generally speaking, the first impulse is to say, I got something for free. It's easy. It's easy for me to just get rather than go to the clerk and say, hey, I, I, I got away here with something that I shouldn't have. That's the difficult thing. That's the counterintuitive thing to do. That's one of the mysteries of the gospel, okay? We are simultaneously sinners, yet we're justified. And there's something in our spirit that testifies to the fact that you can't be satisfied with something like that, with, with walking away with, uh, with something that you didn't uh, pay for. Okay, 9.43. I have uh, about seven more minutes here. We'll do one last thing. Uh, I want to talk about uh, what Paul is talking about here, uh, the audience of the gospel, what we mean by the audience this might seem fairly obvious until we narrow down uh, the scripture which I'm referring to. Um, when we think of the audience of the gospel, we think of people. And closer to the context of what, what Paul's been talking about in Ephesians, it's the whole world. It's Jew and Gentile. The mystery that was once hidden is now revealed. So who is this audience that I'm talking about here? Verse 10. So that this is, this is a, when you start to think about this, you think, wait a minute. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." That's the audience I want to talk about, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. But first, you know, we have to highlight what's said there in 10, that through the church, the church, the the people of Christ, okay, the the people in this room, uh, the people that are a part of, of the church universal, the manifold wisdom of God is made known there. All right. So if you've ever encountered someone, I've had a lot of these conversations where they say, you know, uh, I, I'm good. I'm good with just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. And, and this is really forefront of mind, especially for those of you that may have kids going off to college soon. This is going to be the first one of the first opportunities where they make the decision. You know what? I, I don't think I need to go to church on Sunday morning. I'd rather stay in bed. I, I, I really sympathize with that. I love sleep, <laughs> I love being able to sleep in, but when you convince your kids, listen, you need church, you need it. You know why you need it? Because it's in the context of church that the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. You only get it here. You get it, you get it, you get it here in such a way that you don't get it when it's just you and Jesus. You see the manifold wisdom of God being put on display. And, uh, and again, and so whenever someone tells you something along those lines, I, I, it's just me and Jesus, point them to this verse. In Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God is, is found here. It's found in this context. It's found when fellow believers get together and do things as the body of Christ. You can only find that here. All right, and the second thing we have to highlight there, again, is this idea of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It literally means angels and demons, <laughs> is what we're talking about here. And that's not something we de- generally put forward. You, you know, in the last hundred years or so, we've become so. Uh, intellectual with our faith, maybe unintentionally. And those, it's good to be intellectual about your faith. It's good to present rational arguments about why we can, we can trust the Bible and why we can trust the scrutiny of, of, uh, of the scripture, why we can scrutinize it and not, and not feel like, oh no, we're gonna be found out. Because there is logical, there is logical input behind how the scriptures were, were assembled. But when you start talking about angels and demons, sometimes there's a side of us that's like, well, that's what people associate with fairy tales. People associate that with things that are out there, and of course you believe in angels and demons, but are they really? Are there really angels and demons? Uh, Paul says yes. And uh, who are they? Uh, Paul says the people of God don't just have an audience to the gospel that is composed of people, but the church shows the brilliance of the gospel to the angels and demons as well. Think about that, okay? Uh, One of the great accounts, and I'm going to leave you with this, just as, as something to to marinate in, one of the great accounts in the Bible that made such an indelible impression on me—the first time I, might not have been the first time I read it, but the first time I processed it—like, wait, what's happening there? It gave me chills. And it's the story of the prophet Elisha and his servant Gehazi in the in the book of Second Kings. Do you know where I'm going with this? Have you have you all ever heard this uh, account or remember this account? Uh, the short version is that the king of Syria was was warring against Israel. And he gave the order to go out and seize the prophet Elisha. So he sent an army out. And it says this in 2 Kings six fourteen and following. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant, that's Gehazi of the man of God, uh, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? So they're surrounded by an army, the armies of Syria surrounding the two people, vastly outnumbered. So Elisha tells Gehazi, he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Gehazi must have thought, have you gone mad? (laughs) There's an army, there's a literal army surrounding us, and we're just two, two people. It's like a thousand to two. What are you talking about? Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It gives me chills even reading about that now, just that once he opens his eyes and he sees the armies of the Lord surrounding them and that they outnumber them. Okay, He prayed that Gehazi could see what was not ordinarily seen, and he prayed that that Gehazi could see a portion of that that cosmic audience that watches over the work of the Lord and, and sees how that work takes place in the life of the believer. Now think about that. Think about that. It makes me wonder what's going on around us right now. What audience is around us right now in the church? In Luke 15, we're told that there's rejoicing by the angels in heaven for every person who repents. Go to the book of Job. Go to the book of Job and read that the suffering of Job, the suffering of Job happens in front of a a council of angels and the devil himself. Now, I'm not trying to freak you out or anything like that about what's around us right now, but what I am trying to tell you and what Paul is telling us here is that there is a spiritual realm. It's real. It's a real thing. And, And that even when no one is watching... Even when no one is watching you with that, that jar of almond butter in the bottom of your cart, someone is watching. Someone is watching. There, 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 there's, there's, there's an audience whereby God receives glory in and, what, what you, in and through what you do. Now, this means the angels and demons watch the actions of the church. And though they may not receive attention and say, we don't talk about it in society, you don't hear about it in the media... Uh, we might even be dismissive of it in society, but, but God is glorified whether we acknowledge the reality of it or not, okay? The gospel is more powerful and has a deeper, far-reaching effect than anything you can comprehend or imagine. That's the very power that resides in you and is determined to change you, to change me and to change us so that we might be, be glorified. Uh, any final thoughts, comments, or questions on, on any of that, any of that? I know we kind of had to burn through some of those uh, last few ideas. Any thoughts? Kevin. When you went back into SAMs, you technically didn't need to go back
1: to the counters, but you used your SAMs app. Sam's go. Listen. Everybody should know that is the greatest thing
0: about SAMs. If you were trying to educate me on how SAMs work, <laughs> let me just say, <laughs> yes, I could. You've used my Scan and Go, which, again, is life-changing. But the employee still has to scan that at the exit. So I hope they ask me that at my ordination examination, because <laughs> I know so much about that. So Scan and go is life-changing. It really is. It's a, you know. <laughs> Anyone else something other than wholesale shopping <laughs> related? I brought it up. I brought it up, right? Let me pray. And again, if you, as always, if you have any, if you're struggling through any of this, or you have any additional questions about anything at all, would you please talk to me? I'd love to, to work through it with you and uh, and have uh, deeper discussions on it. So, dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you uh, for the wonder of your Word. We thank you for what we read here that uh, the mystery the mystery of the, of the gospel has been made known uh, to us and as is is experienced, and uh, and we get to have our eyes open to the fact that you came for sinners like us. Uh, not because of our bloodline and not because of uh, our, our, our uh, ability to, to keep the law. Thank the Lord that's not the case, uh, but because you loved us, because you gave your, your, your son for us so that we might uh, uh, be in fellowship with you yet again. Uh, we thank you for that, that wonder and that mystery. Uh, go with us now as we go our different ways and help us to be a people eager to, to share this kind of mystery, this kind of love uh, for, for the watching world to see. Uh, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. All right.